Okay, we're going live now. Welcome to everybody who has joined us so far. We're waiting for a few more attendees to uh, join this fantastic webinar today. If you have any questions, please leave them in the Q&A section of this webinar, not the chat, but the Q&A section. And it's our ambition to leave at least 20, if not 30 minutes for your questions, yeah? So please make good use of the section uh, of the uh, Q&A section um, and we have some fantastic guests here and uh, we'll start in just a few minutes. Um, one of the very hot topics right now, health tech uh, with fantastic guests uh, from the money side and the startup side as always. Chris, you excited to get started in a few minutes? <laughs> very excited. So, you know, we're, we're making money and saving lives. What else do you want? Okay, now, 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 now you caught me there. That's, in, in that context, we should stop after today's episode, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't get, you know, you, you know doesn't, doesn't really get much better than this. Yeah, good. So um, let's just get started and welcome to Southeast Asia Connect, the webinar and podcast series for founders and investors in Southeast Asia, where we connect the money with the startups and the ecosystem to the world. So this series is brought to you by Northridge Partners and Precious Communications, who combined have worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs um, and brought investors to the table to raise companies, uh, to raise capital, grow business, exit, and of course, establish communication strategies for success. My name is Lars Fudisch, and I'm the founder of Precious Communications, one of your two hosts today, uh, economist by study and storyteller by passion and uh, working with over 300 startups in and across and around and beyond Southeast Asia. But nobody knows the side of the money better than the man of the hour and my co-host, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Lars. Thank you. That's very kind of you. My name is Chris Tran, head of Northridge Partners. We work with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs to raise capital, grow their businesses and exit. Today, we're simply delighted to have our topic on health tech. Is it a wonder drug? or bitter pill. COVID-19 exposed the limitations of our existing healthcare infrastructure and forced adoption of online delivery of services. In this webinar, we discuss how the health tech sector is using technology and the internet to improve outcomes. Related, but not covered here, is biotech or medtech, which is technology in relation to the medical hardware and therapeutic industry. In the USA, sadly, we have world leading healthcare, but it's not available to a large population. It's too expensive. One of the reasons that USA is the only advanced economy with a declining lifespan. Here in Southeast Asia, with 700 million people and an average age of around 30, what can we do to maximize life expectancy and quality of life through better healthcare options that we must improve in terms of quality and accessibility? Some of the numbers. Globally, there are 42 health tech 
or healthcare unicorns valued at 100 million, 100 billion, sorry, I should say. In Southeast Asia, after a slow start, health tech is catching up thanks to investor, regulator, and government support. 2019 was a high mark with deal value more than doubling from 2018 to around 270 million. And 2020 is poised to even be better than that with deal sun so far at 135 million. In terms of getting the money, we have Harish, who has been responsible for over $700 million of investments in his career, one of the most active angel investors in the health tech sector based in Singapore. He is an investor of, he has invested in MyDoc and it was previously with Fosan Healthcare. Also a founding member of Quadria Capital, one of the earliest health tech investors regionally and on the board of leading Indonesian healthcare company, Soho, Global Health. For a man that's building the dream, I'm really pleased to invite my friend, Dr. Huran, a leading oncologist, CEO and co-founder of Oncoshot. Oncoshot is creating a cancer treatment platform that includes many services, but a critical one is allowing clinical trial patients to finally discover, enabled by the internet, clever algorithms and big data, a wider range of available treatment options. So I'm very pleased to welcome these guests to the show today. Lars, today's Paul. Yes, so uh, not John Paul the second, but the poll of the polls. Let's see a few numbers to get, get started and uh, see where everybody's perception is. How many doctors do you think Indonesia has per 10,000 people? How many doctors does Indonesia have per 10,000 people? 44 or one doctor. So please help to uh, make your vote just to get an idea on where we stand. Um, it's, it's, just, it's, it's not a judgment call, it's just to get an idea to, uh, on, on where we stand uh, across the world and how health tech hopefully can help with situations we face across the world. So the numbers are trickling in. I do a little bit of the Jeopardy melody. Da, 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 da. Um, and I think we can uh, already have a look at the results. 44 or one. Yeah, so give you a little bit of a perspective. Switzerland has actually 40 doctors per 10,000. France has 30 and Canada has 25. Chris, what's the right answer? You're on mute, Chris. Chris, you were on mute. Four doctors is the answer. So the audience is uh, well-informed and uh, right on the mark. Exactly. And um, while we can't just add doctors to the mix as much as we wanted, health tech is there to hopefully help to make better use of the capacity. And I think that's one of the big promises that we want to look into. How can we make the best of limited capacity in markets like doctors uh, in Indonesia or hospital beds uh, in the Philippines? Um, how can health tech address these issues? And Chris will knock it out of the park and start uh, with our first guest. Yes, well, let's start with the man with $700 million and counting. Why invest money, time and resources in the health tech sector? Harish, you have a track record of investing in this space for a while now. And really, what made you first interested into it? Well, first off, Chris and Lars, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here with, with you both and, and the audience. Um, I moved here 10 years ago to try, try to identify an opportunity to create an impact. And as I look across the world and, and at regions when I was at Medtronic at the time, we saw that Southeast Asia had one of the greatest imbalances between the demand of healthcare, which represents the patients, the, the disease factor in, in the region, and the supply of healthcare, which are the hospitals and doctors, just like Nepal just mentioned. And uh, I believe from our research that the difference given the population of the region and the epidemiology caseload in the region, it's about a $50 billion gap between, between what needs to be done. So in health tech, health tech is a way to address that gap in a cost efficient way. So that's why I've focused a lot of my time and attention these days to find the best health tech companies out there that will chip away at that, that gap. Fantastic. You know, it's a, uh... 
you've been one of the really early guys. And what will be interesting is for the audience out there is to really delve into your investment, for example, in MyDoc. Can you share how the process of this investment went and really what pulled, helped you pull the trigger and, and commit to making this investment? Well, well, you know, given, as we just talked about, there's a scarcity of resources and patients don't have all the information they need to get from the doctor to diagnosis and the treatment that they, they need to see at a given time. Uh, I invested in MyDoc the first time in 2013. Uh, at that time, it was a, a new idea of putting telemedicine out into the public. Uh, to be honest, it was a little bit early. Uh, telemedicine had not been picked up in this region or across the world for many years. But what changed that, of course, and what greatly accelerated was COVID. Um, COVID has been a situation where payers, where regulators, and patients have been willing to adopt new forms of technology to access different stakeholders in the segment. And, and we've seen at MyDoc itself, 32 times pickup of COVID patients or patients in our clinics as we had in January. So 32 times increase in, in five months. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite amazing. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you say you were too early, but not too early for something else at all. Um, what I find interesting is that in the last six months, you've actually made two additional investments but actually even more exciting is that you've done an exit and the name of the company is Vios Medical and it was purchased by huge Japanese conglomerate Murata, uh, which is roughly around $13 billion. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that exit that you did this year? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so Vios, just to give some context, is a company that is focused on step-down care. What that means is when you find a patient in intensive care or an urgent care bed, making sure you can use the Internet of Things to communicate with the, the equipment monitoring the patient and the providers taking care of that patient when a patient should move down the level of a hospital. So you can imagine a situation with COVID when we have a shortage of beds, such a solution would be very valuable to providers and payers to make sure that patients can move to the right resource when we have scarce uh, capacity today. So uh, Murata, of course, picked up on that. And, and uh, you know, this year, virus has been doing very well. They, they operate not just in this region, but in India and other regions in the world as well. And Murata will scale that, uh, of course. You know, congratulations. And that's uh, news that we just love to share with the ecosystem, backing the entrepreneur, uh, having a successful exit, and hopefully that capital really uh, recycling. So Lars, over to you to speak to Dr. Huron. Hi, everyone. Well, welcome to Southeast Asia Connect. Thanks for, for making time for us and our uh, guests, uh, our other attendees today. Hi, Lars. It's Hi. a pleasure to be here. <laughs> you are not just a successful uh, entrepreneur, but uh, first and foremost, an oncologist, a medical specialist and practitioner. And um, um, I know you're one of the, well, the, the passions is to save more lives. And I want to say thank you uh, for, to you, thank to you and many of the public service practitioners for volunteering your service during these times at the front line and supporting um, uh, the COVID period care um, in, in dormitories, for example. I know you're you're helping out with some of the dormitories in Singapore, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's not something that's just unique to me. I think a lot of us have been doing that as well. Yeah. Um, what's your view on? COVID's impact on health tech in the region from the perspective of dealing with, you know, public health care on one side and, and private ventures on the other? Um, so I think um, COVID has really accelerated the openness um, to adopt and leverage on digital health and related technologies. And, you know, we know from the past that, um, you know, when it comes to healthcare practitioners and institutions, we've generally been the slowest to adopt um, technology. And so the startups that have actually, you know, found themselves to be in the right place in the right time today, um, I think it's fair to say that many of them have actually been in the space for quite a few years already. And um, because they've done the groundwork, um, they've been the leaders in building up the ecosystem that from those point in times, they've actually facilitated the communication and the engagement between different partners. And COVID has really um, been a key instrument in unlocking that. And um, I think um, a lot of the startups in this nascent digital health space will be standing to benefit 
um, as they move into digital health and in some areas like telemedicine over time. Okay, so from your perspective then as the founder and CEO of OncoShot, why adding all those complications of dealing with, you know, the greedy money people um, or people like, like Chris when you already have a successful uh, career as a doctor? Right, so I, I guess your question is why do a startup when you're a doctor, right? Um, so I think uh, it just goes back to, um, you know, my journey as a doctor. Um, so when I'm seeing patients in clinic, I think um, quite clearly for me, I recognize that there are some very critical problems um, that are worth solving. And I felt that I saw a problem for my cancer patients, um, which was how do I answer the question of what are your true landscape of treatment or options that are available for you? And today, a lot of that process is done in a very manual manner where you depend on an oncologist or the specialist to be able to see a patient and be able to map out the entire landscape. And with the complexity that comes with cancer care, um, we are not actually in an efficient space where you can do this matching and creating of landscape options in a very efficient manner. And I felt that maybe I was at that point of my career where I could take that risk, um, work with you know, people with um, the money or who wanted to bring me to that money and to see how we could scale um, tools that would be useful for not just patients, but also hospitals and industry partners and to really create a valuable ecosystem from there. So, so the technology part, if I understand you then correctly, is really looking at the efficiency and bringing supply and demand together, if I can describe it that simple. Yeah. So in our specific work, we are dealing with the building the supply and demand side for cancer clinical trials. So just as a quick introduction, we've got about more than seven to 10,000 cancer clinical trials across the world. Um, there are about 14 million cancer patients being diagnosed every year. Now, every cancer patient at some point should know what their treatment options are, but we only know half the landscape, which is really the approved therapies around the world. There are so many innovative treatments that are being developed via clinical trials, but there's actually no formal or systemized manner to approach exploration of clinical trials. And that's where we are coming in with, you know, the right AI and algorithms where we embed these algorithms with our part, clinical partners so that they can help their patients identify their true options. Ongoshot hmm. um, is quite a young company, one and a half years. What are some of the milestones that, you, that you've achieved so far? So, We've done two things, um, which I think are worth mentioning. The first is we've actually started to build an ecosystem in Singapore. Um, we've called it Project Easy. It's, uh, it's spelled E-I-S-E, -E, and it means Project Enhanced Clinical Trial Initiation Screening and Enrollment. What we're really trying to do is to establish a singular vision that every Singapore cancer patient will have real-time access to cancer clinical trials. And we have nine partners today. We actually haven't formally launched it because of COVID, but the need is so great that you know, we've managed to recruit um, a major cancer hospital that does most of the cancer clinical trials in Singapore, takes care of about 30% of the cancer patient population here. And we've got two global pharma partners as well who are on board the ecosystem, aside from cancer clinics and genomic service providers. Now, each of them in this ecosystem, they want to add value um, to cancer patients and to get them to the right options. So that's the first thing that we've achieved. The second thing that we've kind of um, achieved is maybe not out of our own um, volition, but rather out of demand. So as a result of COVID, um, since March, we've been getting a lot of interest from companies in the region, which is Middle East, um, India, uh, Indonesia, for example, to help provide patients in those regions with access to second opinion from cancer specialists in Singapore. So because of COVID, where there's, an, there's a focus on safe uh, distancing, as well as restrictions on travel, people who would otherwise be able to leverage on you know, global or world-class expertise today can't do that. And we're trying to build, we have actually launched a platform as of today um, because of many of these organizations that have come to us to say, hey, look, Uncle Shot, can you firstly give me access to, your, to the cancer experts in this country? And also, can you then give me access to clinical trials? 
which our patients are requesting for. So we've come up with a complete solution now, and that's the second milestone that you know I, I'd like to share. Fantastic! Congratulations, um, and uh, very, very. Uh, what, what's next on the radar? What's the next milestone that you're aiming for? Well, I think we have only scratched about five percent of the surface of what we can do, and I and we are really uh, motivated to drive immense value um, to our ecosystem partners over the coming months, and that's really our singular focus um, over the next six to twelve months. Fantastic. Um, and, and good luck on bringing those numbers up because at the end of the day, it uh, will hopefully help to save lives. Um, now let's move on to one of our, our segments called rapid fire, right? Um, where I'll ask a few questions and uh, then I just want a short uh, stand uh, statement from, from both of you on, on those. And a quick reminder for everybody, we are already having the first uh, questions in the Q&A trickling in, please keep them coming. This webinar is really about having a conversation, not just among ourselves, but also especially with you, uh, the people that are spending their Thursday afternoon with us uh, on this very exciting topic of health tech. So let's go to rapid fire. Um, how much can we reduce human touch via health tech? A lot or a little? Harish, you wanna give it a shot first? Um, I, I think in the beginning a lot, but after treatment, it's gonna be a little, you still need doctors. <laughs> What does the doctor say? I think it's I think it's going to be a mix. Um, the role of the doctor can't be removed, so I agree. You know, it's it's um, it's going to be a little a little for me. Yeah. Okay. The other part comes to uh, the money part. Health tech to dramatically reduce costs. Yes or no? Puran, you first. Yeah, but I think health tech will um, help to reduce costs um, in certain areas. But there may be also areas by, from which the adoption of some of these technologies may in, increase costs. So I think it's a gray zone. Um, I would say in the middle ground, yeah. <laughs> okay. Harish? I would say health tech actually has huge opportunity to reduce cost and due to improved efficiencies to get patients into the hospitals. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because it also it's different objectives. One is efficiency and get the right care to the right people and saving money is not always the main objective but it can it has the potential right good telemedicine very specifically telemedicine overrated or the new normal Arash. i think it's a, it should be a standard of care for the beginning uh interaction between a patient to help triage them to the proper doctor all right it's a new normal yes i agree i I think healthcare um, telemedicine would be a new normal in a in a large group of patients. Yeah. Okay. La last rapid fire question: Robo doctors now five years or never? Huron, you first. I think it's already now. <laughs> there are good use cases already available, um, and I know that's been adopted as well. Um, for example, in neurological surgery, amongst many others. So it's already now. Yeah. I'm sure, Arash, you, you won't completely throw that answer out of the window either, right? I think I think that's that's natural. But if you're talking about chatbots, you know, I've deferred to the real doctor <laughs> in, in terms of where that where that uh, where, where that opportunity lies. Yeah, I think every anybody who has ever tried to diagnose their you know their 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 running nose, a little bit of a headache, might have been scared by what's what what's coming out of those Q and A's kind of uh, run by a chatbot, right? So it's better <laughs> to actually speak to a person that can add a little bit of context to it. Good, Chris, over to you and the pitch. Absolutely, so something that the startups are waiting for. We had a fantastic year so far in terms of raising with HelloDoc, 65 million, uh, related Bioformis, 35 million, Allo Doctor, 33, Doc Doc, 25, Doctors Anywhere, 31. And so for the benefit of the startups out there, Harish, you're still actively looking at deals. You've recycled it, uh, the money through an exit. Uh, you've got some uh, dollars burning a hole in your pocket, which is fantastic. What do budding startups need to say to you, or actually as importantly, not say to you to make sure that they can get your attention and start to form a real uh, wonderful relationship with you? So I, I think as I meet entrepreneurs, uh, it's important to understand in Southeast Asia, there are 10 different markets here and they all have different dynamics in terms of how patients pay for their actual healthcare. Um, what we've seen a lot of in particular in, in high population, high volume markets like Indonesia or 
you know, maybe countries are a little bit further along in digital landscape like India, is that we've had uh, a lot of B2C players. And these players look to expand into B2B markets such as Singapore and Malaysia and Thailand and increasingly Philippines as they have a better payer outcome. But, but that mentality needs to be thought very carefully in terms of how would that happen? And, and you can't have a one size fits all in Southeast Asia, unfortunately. So, so having a really clear understanding of who the actual pair is and building a business model, a culture, uh, enterprise sales model, or you know, a, a mass commercialization ad model, it really depends on, on, on which market you're serving. That'd be number one. Um, I would say number two would be to un- have a clear understanding of the patient referral pathway understand which stakeholders are going to be impacted by your solution and really understanding what are the unit economics behind each stakeholder's decision to use your product or service. Uh, I find that a lot of people don't estimate how much the doctor making or saving or whether they're losing revenue by using your service. It may be the best idea, very efficient, but if people are losing money, they're going to be resistant to change. Thank you. And Horan, you're currently not looking for new investors as you have sufficient commitment from your currently engaged investors. However, even though it's a young company, in terms of your pitch over time and the ability to get yourself successfully funded with the right investors and the right levels of commitment, how do you think your pitch has changed over time? What have you learned? Chris, I, you know, um, over the course of the last one year or so, I think what was really evident as um, you know, getting the interest up there was truly traction. You know, to show that you have built a algorithm is really not good enough. And to show that the algorithm works, your patient can get matched to a clinical trials, it's not good enough. You actually have to show that this algorithm solves a problem for a cancer hospital, for a physician, for the industry partner. And um, a lot of the um, process to actually do that takes time. But what we really um, allowed ourselves to do was to bring this product to these users and to get them to validate the product that it would serve their needs. And with that, we were able to onboard them. So at least on our pitch, it was actually quite clear to our investors that they were looking at a startup with a technology that was going to be adopted. Um, They're still very early in that entire process, but it already shows a lot that they can use it they feel how it works and they know that it can potentially solve major problems for them. So I think that really worked in our favor as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Harish. And thanks, Harun. You, you know, if we, if we really think about it, Lars, it's, it's quite fascinating because, you know, we don't live and breathe this every day. But, uh, you, you know, uh, all around understanding the patient, the patient pathway, um, different markets, how this all translates and, and actually being able to show demonstrable traction. So that's, that's, that's very good. You know, Lars, what's great about having these webinars are that they're your parties and you're, you're allowed to invite whoever you like. So um, I'm just going to take this opportunity to shout out and embarrass some of my friends. Um, so the first one is Roshan from Red Shitsia. Thank you so much for joining and um, keep up the good work. David from Gunderson, thank you for joining. Please feel free to ask whatever questions you like. And Waya from Endeavor Indonesia. So thanks for joining guys. Thanks for your continued support. Last, onto the fun stuff, the big Q&A stack. We've got gazillions of questions here. So let's start getting through as many as we can. Fantastic. Yeah, um, a reminder to all uh, guests today, please put your questions in the Q&A section, not the chat, the Q&A section, and then you can vote questions up so that we make sure we get through all of them. And uh, the first question uh, comes from uh, my, my personal friend and uh, regional in- investor, uh, Tina De Chico, who's asking, what's the best way for individual investors to invest in health tech in Southeast Asia, public, PE, venture, direct, how to get started in that in this in this field that's maybe harder to assess if you're not um, a, a doctor or have been focused on that. Harish, what, what's your tip? Uh, well, I, I think, um, Tina, the, 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 I mean, it is good to get into deal flow to understand what segments of the space do you really want to focus on first? What are the the key strategies that you think are going to take off? And then what I found is that entrepreneurs are more than willing to sit down and and talk and and sell their 
visioned or pitch um, once you identify that. Because there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs trying to do some amazing things, um, but it's hard to be focused unless you have a clear idea what the strategy is first. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for the answer. Thanks for the question, Tina. And the next two questions I'll, I'll, I'll combine. One is from Hazel Teo, who asking, will my primary oncologist be open to me getting actually a second opinion service? And then uh, it's, it's related to the other question here. How can I benefit from a second opinion? What if my primary oncologist doesn't agree to the suggested treatment or uh, diagnosis? All right. So, um... So maybe I can answer that question firstly from the perspective of an oncologist myself. Um, now, for most other conditions, let's say cough, cold, or a running nose, you don't really need a second opinion, right? Um, one consult and you're done. Now, how is cancer different? It's a life-impacting diagnosis. And for many patients that we deal with, sometimes the diagnosis um, could mean that their survival is you know, impacted as well. Now, from a cancer doctor's perspective, the diagnosis that we have and the treatment um, pathway that we put the patient on thereafter, it, it alters the course for them, right? It's a life-changing step. It is very reassuring for a patient to be able to find out that both his diagnosis and the treatment plans, there is some concordance between specialists as well. And we in practice, um, typically are very open to allowing our patients to get a second opinion. And sometimes I find that when my patients go to another doctor for a second opinion and they come back, they trust me a lot more because they know that I've gotten my stuff sorted out for them. So that's the first thing. Now, from the perspective of OncoShot and what we are doing for this entire second opinion work is that we're trying to deliver expertise from our global or regional experts who are based in Singapore for patients who are in other countries, um, typically in the region. Now, the main issue that we actually face, and this is actually from the doctors overseas who share with us, is it's not so much about the level of expertise from the doctors, it's actually about access to care. Um, a lot of the drugs and the treatments that may be you know, newly approved within the last two to three years in the US or Europe are not actually available in those countries. So if you see an oncologist in, those, um, in, in the wider region, there may be a chance that their recommendations are actually confined to what treatment options they have over there. Whereas if you were to get an opinion outside, you may actually be able to explore in a practical manner what you could access if you get connections within these landscapes. So that's what we are trying to solve. And I think from the cancer perspective as a, as a specialized digital health platform, um, it's a very value-added service. And we come aboard as a very collaborative kind of spirit where the oncologist is not trying to act in isolation uh, on the second opinion portal. He actually wants to work with the oncologist of the patient and provide that information so that they can actually get the right treatment done for the patient in those countries. Thank you. And, you know, you're, you're a great example of entrepreneurs that, you know, they, they see a problem that they're dealing with in their lives or in their profession and they want to solve it and, and uh, come up with a better solution of that. So a great example on how it fits together. Lars, we uh, are lucky enough to have viewers uh, in India actually got this question for Dr. Huron. And it's there is a huge demand for online second opinion consultation in India with senior oncologists of Singapore. Do you actually have senior medical surgical and radiation oncologists available for second opinion? And is it both tele and video consultations available? Yeah, so as of today, um, we are in a period of pilot testing with some key global and regional experts. Um, our current partners are from Curie Oncology, but I'm very excited to also share that we've got a list of about 30 partners um, that spread across not just medical oncology, but radiation oncology, surgical oncology, pathology, and radiology. So these are all key domains of expertise that are critical um, for management of cancer. And we've got these guys on board, and you know we are just looking at uh, when we can share them with the rest of the world as well. So we really look forward to this opportunity over time. Fantastic. And uh, I've actually got a question for Harish. Uh, 
you know, when we look at this whole sector and, and you know, there's a lot of interest, but there's a lot of, um, I, 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 I guess, I guess, education curve, right? Um, maybe just to sort of nourish the audience. Um, and I've got a few questions around definitions, etc. I don't want to turn this into a sort of, you know, too much of a technical 101. But are there some shortcuts, you know, in the decade that you've had successfully investing and exiting? Are there some sort of shortcuts, some gems around the key to success? How do I identify something that that, you know, has a lot of good um, uh, potential traction? You've already talked about understanding the payer, understand the patient pathway. I mean, that's great. But is there some, you know, we're wonderfully here in Southeast Asia, which to, to us is still early and there's so much to come. Is there some sort of no brainer things that you're looking at at the moment, if we can just sort of pick your brain in that direction? Sure, um, I, think, I think it ultimately depends on uh, capital. What I mean by that is that as an entrepreneur, you have a few sources to get capital from. You can go to equity investors, you can go to uh, debt investors potentially, or you can go to your customers. And I would of course want a, uh, a startup that actually focuses most on the third element, how to raising capital by getting actual sales and revenue. Now, as I found, um, you know, we talked about this a bit early in the panel, but uh, you know, some startups actually go for companies that can create more re revenue for a potential customer, uh, try to get a hospital more sales or more patients. Others are trying to find ways to cut cost, whether it's saving insurance companies from, from going out, giving out premiums or, or helping hospitals save money by, by improving their efficiency. I like startups that focus on the latter because to me, the costs are real. The costs are something that you can easily count and, and really show the savings that you're providing to that customer as opposed to theoretical revenue gains that you're gonna be able to provide in the future. Uh, and, and, and that takes a lot harder sales pitch and, and, and enterprise sales pitch in general to convince the customer that you're gonna make them more money. Whereas if you can actually show them where, where their, their costs are higher than a benchmark competitor, or where they're being inefficient, and this solution is actually gonna save them money, I think you're gonna be able to get capital from your customer far easier. And once you show traction doing that, you're gonna be able to raise equity uh, capital much faster and, and, and keep thriving. Fantastic. And we've got a lot of questions coming here, so I'll try to synthesize them. You know, it's of big interest because uh, we feel it, it's real, it's very tangible. And, and if we think about the second step beyond just, okay, it's around cost savings because that's more relatable than the actual uh, revenue generation point of view. Um, we have a lot of family offices, um, a different myriad, if I look at these questions coming through of type of investors and the traditional comfort zone is to invest in hard assets. And it's interesting because this relates to what we talked about before. You know, if I wanted to invest in healthcare, look, I'll just build a hospital because at least that land value is worth something. It's it's more tangible. It's easier. Um, how do we build a bridge across that? I mean, how do you sort of help when you know you were raising funds uh, yourself? Obviously, as you know, running funds, you had various stakeholders you had to convince to give you the stewardship of the money. How did you get beyond? Well, actually, there is value created beyond the buildings, right? I mean. Was there anything that, that helped investors get across that? Yeah, th that's actually one of the biggest challenges we have in Southeast Asia compared to China or India when it comes to health tech. Uh, investors here tend to like, just you said, hard assets. So to build a secondary care hospital in, in this region, in the developing market, it costs anywhere from $30 million to $50 million to build a facility, but you get to land in buildings that you mentioned. And it'll take about five years to get to profitability to do that. Uh, unfortunately, most investors who have been developed have grown funds to create that opportunity, to fund those type of opportunities, but they don't have the time frame to go do that. So they more focus on mature EBITDA positive opportunities and that's not health tech immediately. So, so we do have to raise the sophistication investors to see the, the opportunity of a scale technology asset to be a replacement for that, that secondary care hospital that can actually serve the patients or help the doctors reach out to those patients uh, in a way that you don't need to continue building secondary care hospitals because you just don't have the money for that. Uh, now, seeing which entrepreneurs are building business models to do that, that that's what I was talking about prior. What, what exactly are you going to do for your customer and, and how can they quickly show some utilization or revenue metrics that show they have the ability to recruit a team and deploy capital efficiently to, to actually keep backing and scaling as they, they grow their sales force? Maybe a, thank you. Maybe a quick follow-up question on that. So is there a specific type of 
IT-led health tech ventures like teleconsulting, remote monitoring, uh, that looks more like uh, a sustainable business model that's easy to spot and also easy to judge if it works compared to others? Well, I think both of those models are, they do what I was suggesting. They both save their customer money. So teleconsultation, what it does is help triage patients for insurance companies or governments, whoever the payer is, and make sure the, the patient doesn't have to go step into a hospital to get the, pay, the, the basic care they need. They can actually just do it virtually and that saves them money. Uh, likewise, remote monitoring saves the hospital money because they don't need to employ as many nurses or doctors to do the rounds. They can actually do this from a control center and, and virtually take care of their patients. That saves labor cost. So, so both those examples are good ones to show that they can actually save money for a customer. Um, and, and, and generally, I think those are, those are ones that, that I like to invest into. Fantastic. Um, talking about investing and maybe growth, one of the highest ranking questions today is, what are the plans of Oncoshot launching in India? Ruin, <laughs> that's I, I guess that's well for you. Done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so Oncoshot is actually open to um, providing service to patients already. Um, of course, there are some caveats in terms of um, the service that we are providing via our doctors who are based in Singapore. But what is actually happening concurrently is that we actually do have a team in India. And we are working with some of the top hospitals um, in the um, Indian landscape in Mumbai and Delhi. Um, what we are trying to do is to build those relationships and get the top experts uh, in each of these domains onto the platform as well. And hopefully um, they can also support um, the patients in India um, and together with our local experts. And, and hopefully with time, we're trying to get the best experts around the world to join the platform as well because we are so cancer focused and with clinical trials, you know, not necessarily being confined to one particular area, they're trying to merge both of it and our scope of involvement for experts will not be just even um, confined to Singapore or India, it's going to be much wider. Um, India itself will see a lot of opportunities for the patient population. Thank you. And um, a question, I think, for both of you um, about regulators and governments. What, what kind of role do they play in supporting health tech? And, and uh, Uren, maybe you can directly say, is it, is, it is it a highly regulated market, what you're doing, or it's actually uh, it's, it's out of scope and everybody's happy and, and don't want to touch it? Or is it kind of one of those things people want to help, but they don't know? It's a, is it a, you know, stones in the way to, to more success or is everybody highly supportive? How does it work with regulators and, and governments in, in your field? So I, I can share this as someone who is a doctor who works in the public sector, um, who has, while in the process of building OncoShot, we've had to work with the government a lot as well. Um, firstly, um, healthcare adoption has always been slow as an industry, as, even from the practitioner perspective, if all this tried to be the last ones, make sure it works elsewhere and then you try to make sure it works over here. Um, but because of the, the need in the ecosystem, things have changed. Now the stance that I see um, the regulatory authorities in Singapore um, taking is one of being open. Um, they are very receptive to the proposals and the plans that startups come up with. Uh, one good example of that is several years back, and um, you know, Harish would know this because his startup, my doc, amongst a few others, were actually part of a regulatory sandbox which was created just for telemedicine as well. And the learnings from that were what we're actually uh, employing today during COVID with the telemedicine experience. Um, the regulatory authorities are very open to actually um, keep an eye on how the startups are doing and taking feedback at, this, and, at the same time. Um, a lot of things are being learned along the process. So that's the thing that they've also shared with me. They don't know the answers to many of these things. And so if you look at regulations itself, Singapore's telemedicine regulation is not going to come up until maybe in a year's time or just more than that. Um, today we have a guidelines, but the acts that we need um, to standardize things at a larger level, at a higher level, will take a bit of time. And I think that's the same for the rest of the region where they're learning from the experiences of you know, um, deploying telemedicine during COVID and where they'll start to get more structured in terms of their legislations as well. So that takes time. But generally I see an attitude of openness um, in working with the startup community to, to do this. 
Thank you. I, I know Chris has is, is itching to ask the next next question, but I just wanted to 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 also get the perspective of Harish on regulation and, and governments to to have basically have both perspectives. Is it um, slowing things down or are we on the right track? I think things have certainly accelerated with COVID. Um, you know, as as Karun mentioned on the the opportunity to operate the MOH sandbox, that that just gives companies the opportunity to actually participate in the market. But a big part of the regulatory aspects is the willingness to pay and how much do you pay for a teleconsult? And and this is still things that are being determined and decided between all the markets in Southeast Asia. But it's a pressing question because if you look at the Singapore specialist, they've lost fifty to seventy percent of their business due to COVID and patients not coming in. And, and they need to find a way to get in touch with their patients and telemedicine is starting to be the, the one to pick up, but there's still questions in terms of how, how would they pay for this? Who, who pays the bill and how much would it be? So I, I think all these things are being decided and, and figured out. So that way uh, patients do get access and doctors can still get business when the overall regulatory environment is shut down for, for things like lockdowns. Thank you. Chris. All right, thank you. So uh, again, just, you, you know, I don't know why we always have this last, but um, people don't like popping stuff at Q&A and all my friends like to give me Q&A through WhatsApp to see how distracted I can get. But um, I do get a few interesting questions here. And, you know, this one, um, Harish, I'm so glad I don't have to answer. <laughs> um, but um, a, a tricky one, but a very interesting one. You, you know, we've seen, uh, for example, in um, uh, in a lot of industries, right? Um, but I think even more so for health tech, you can't ignore some of the geopolitical factors. And if we think about health tech, it's not just around investment and M&A flows between the China and the US, but this whole reality of for a long time, there's been this wonderful, I mean, it has been wonderful collaboration between the US and China in terms of sending students to each other's universities, research, etc. Um, it's obvious that the situation is rapidly evolving and that does have impact in terms of Southeast Asia. Uh, some of the wonderful things we are seeing coming out of Southeast Asia, for example, is how Vietnam has dealt very well with the crisis. In fact, it's, it's quite underrated in how well they've done with it to the extent that even a country like Vietnam has been exporting and giving away PPEs and masks, etc. right? So that's a really good success story. Do you see how the landscape changing just open up more opportunities in terms of, if you think about Vietnam, well, that's just a potential source of some of these supplies. If you think about research and of course, you know, um, Singaporean universities are just continuously getting better uh, around research. Can you comment on how maybe medium to longer term, you see what's happening right now, change the ecosystem a little bit? Well, um, you know, it, it's, it is a complicated question when it comes to politics. I mean, uh, for background, I'm American, but I was most recently working for one of the largest Chinese corporations um, uh, operating internationally, Bosun. And, uh, you know, I, I think you'll have continued professional standards and research and business from, from both sides that, that will help advance and get treatments out of Southeast Asia where um, you know, I look at those sources, those areas as source of innovation and, and Southeast Asia is a massive market that can benefit from that innovation. There is increasing more local innovation being developed and, and Singapore is a, is a leader around that. Um, I think Huron actually could probably talk a little bit more detail given the nature of his business um, from a clinical research standpoint, but, but I, I, I do find that there will be more local innovation needs to be done or they will need to be working with one party or another uh, to get that innovation to door. Um, It'll, it'll be hard to play both sides uh, compared to where it was in the uh, how it used to be. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, another question for for both of you because you've, you've seen that um, a very practical question: What are the most challenging aspects to scale up health tech startups? And I'm sure you could talk about it for ten hours, but maybe really just the, the top of mind ones. Uh, Huron, you want to start with that? From what's your kind of uh, kickers that uh, you know keep you up at night? Of uh, what's most challenging to scale it, make it big, make it work, and then Harish. Yeah. So I mean, if um, if you think about it from the B two B perspectives uh, perspective, um, if you are dealing with institutions, healthcare institutions like hospitals, 
um, typically the entire process of onboarding hospital partners is going to be a long, painful one. And you know, if you're going to get into um, you know, engagements, it starts off with a small pilot. And then by the time you can actually get to your point of monetization, that process may be a long one. And if you can imagine then um, you know, uh, deploying the same mechanism across multiple hospitals, um, that could sometimes be a, um, a limiting factor or a challenge for startups to scale. Um, if you're working in B2C, where you know you are dealing with patients directly, um, I think uh, um, you know it's going to be a scale issue. How do you bring um, your telemedicine product or any other service that you have to the patients who want to adopt it? Um, in Singapore, I think um, our startups have had a bit more challenge um, because of the inherently low population that we have in our country. So, as a result of that, we have to move outside of Singapore to get scale. Um, Take the um, other countries in the region, for example, uh, the likes of uh, India or Indonesia, where you have Practo in India and you have, you know, um, Allodoctor or um, Pillodoc in Indonesia. Um, they are likely to have experienced a much faster and rapid scale in numbers because of the sheer population that they are dealing with. So, um, so those would be the kind of challenges I envision um, that our startups would have, uh, depending on where's their focus, whether it's B2B or B2C. Thank you. Harish, what, what's your take on, on the question on the most challenging aspects to scale tech startups? It, it really depends on the market, but ultimately the two challenges every startup I invest into is talent and capital. So uh, that's with every startup, not just health tech, but but I can say in, in healthcare, given that uh, to allude further what Jerome was mentioning, when you're doing a B2B model in Singapore, you're dealing with insurance companies or hospitals, but these companies are inherently risk averse and they're bureaucratic. And so to be able to effectively sell to them, you need to have a proper enterprise sales leader who can, who can discuss the rationale for why you'd want to do business together and, 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 and convince them to move forward beyond just a pilot. Uh, those people are expensive. So you need to raise capital to, to be able to uh, hire and recruit those people. And, and, and the second piece about it is that there's not necessarily a huge culture today of, of getting people that are going to be retained on just pure equity. So people like cash, and again, this means you need to raise capital. The, the, the challenge there is that most investors here like EBITDA. They like, they like hard assets so they can backstop their investment off of. And, and, and that's always going to be an issue. But I, I see that the market is actually becoming mature and faster and developing uh, to identify risk appropriately and then be able to hire the best talent so you can actually start selling to these, these institutions. And, and, and we're seeing that change happen for the last few years quickly. Thank you. In other uh, sectors like, like banking, finance, we've seen that standards are important to increase scalability and adoption like um, open banking APIs. Are there any kind of APIs or standards for health tech in the, in the making? Are they driven, would they be driven by investors, uh, by, by big conglomerates, governments? What's your take on standards? Maybe Arish first. And APIs, for me, it's, it's part of standardization. In, in med tech, there are HL7 standards, which are, are used by most of the major uh, medical manufacturers in the world. And, and they have standards in place. So you can hook into your APIs to, uh, to those products. When you're talking about insurance companies or hospitals, they usually have proprietary systems that may not have been built in the past few decades. <laughs> So you have to basically, uh, you know, just like the banks were maybe 10 years ago when fintechs were coming up, you, you need to do it bespoke and, and uh, work with your client. And, and that's where we spent a lot of development dollars to, to build in those integrations. Thank you. Uh, Huron, is, is that a big issue, you know, onboarding more partners that there's not that one standard and everything needs a lot of, you know, really drilling and hammering to, to get the information flowing properly? So, um, I mean, so Harish referred to HL7 as a standard. So that's typically employed by a lot of healthcare institutions in terms of their digital record systems and things like that. So in general, um, complying with these standards, it's, it's a good practice. Um, as a startup, if you want to have the power to integrate with, you know, outside players, you need to actually comply with some standard at some point, and you should do that early. 
Um, and that's probably one of the, the main ones. Um, there are other areas of uh, you know, standards where we use for you know, in terms of the pharmaceutical side, in terms of diagnostic lists and stuff like that. Um, but those are just the specifics. But generally, there are a few standards that are employed by most institutions um, across mm -hmm. the world. And startups should adhere to them as much as they can. Um, yeah, I would say that. Good. Thank you. All right, Lars. So, you know, we've um, touched on mental health just a little bit here, but um, I've got a couple of, I'm sorry, these are particularly my friends who are in, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> ask me questions on this. Now, the mental health that we touched on was, you know, why are you so crazy being a successful doctor uh, to, to go into a startup? Um, but um, the, the, the questions are actually um, to both you, Huren, and Harish is, the reality is this, right? I mean, particularly with COVID-19, there's been a lot of social impact, um, a lot of mental health issues. Um, do you guys actually see this as, a, 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 as, a, as an emerging trend um, looking at mental health issues? I mean, culturally, uh, it will still take some time to remove, uh, I guess, the shame elements. But, you know, one of the wonderful things about potentially di digital delivery is reducing the cost, increasing the uh, anonymity, and um, I guess as a you know, medical services professional, you would obviously vouch that uh, mental health is, is very real and not something to be, to be imagined. So maybe if I can kindly start with you, uh, Huron, and, and then onto you, uh, Harish. Uh, certainly we understand that if you look at other markets, mental health is huge. So uh, Huron, please. Yep, so Chris, I think um, you know, mental health as a field by itself, um, hasn't been very sexy in this part of the world for a long time, but it's actually very important. Um, and we've started to see the impact um, on our mental health as a result of COVID. So it's not just for patients, even at the level of, of people who have been you know, fairly okay at baseline, COVID is a very stressful situation for everyone. There's major disruption in our entire work you know, um, life and lifestyles, right? Now, um, what we started to see, even from an oncologist perspective, there's disruption to care, there's additional stress on not just the, the patients, there's also additional stress on the doctors in terms of how are we gonna care for our patients in the most optimal manner. Um, we have been trying to set up systems where patients can reach out to services or hotlines so that they can actually just get their questions answered and some reassurance at that very basic framework. And I see that there are actually some startups in this space where they're trying to deliver um, you know, mental health um, assistance via chatbots and things like that during this COVID period. And I think um, you know, it has helped um, all of us in the ecosystem to some extent, but I really do hope at some point this thing can be made more aware. Uh, patients, people can understand that you know, there's a role for this and hopefully there's a lot more support you know, for these startups as well. Thank you, Haran. So, uh, Harish, is uh, mental health sexy? I mean, it's it's clearly a big problem, and and uh, in this region, I've seen more um, interest to invest into this from the the physical healthcare assets and hospitals building mental health capacity and, and capabilities. Uh, that's clear. In terms of the digital therapeutics around mental health, I think this is something that's still very nascent. But that being said, you know, recently, I think maybe a week or two weeks ago. Um, a local company, Holmes, was able to get funding from Optum, the, one of the largest, uh, United Health, the largest insurer in the United States. Um, they got funding to, to develop their mental health solutions. And uh, I know they had you know, moved some, some efforts over to the U.S. to be able to achieve that. But uh, you do see some mental health activity coming up from, from groups like that. So I hope more will come of it. Okay. Thank you. And we're actually nearing, we, you know, the 58, hour, 58 minutes already. So uh, nearly an hour flew by through our discussion. Uh, thank you so much. That's, that's fantastic. Um, and we have still tons of questions that we can't answer today. Anything from how to uh, make universal healthcare more accessible with the help of, of health tech to ethical aspects of computer guided or assisted decisioning versus the responsibilities of the doctor. Um, just, just, you know, starting with a question would take another hour. So I'm afraid we can't answer all of them. 
uh, but I think we had fantastic kind of questions and a good kind of variety of the big topics, smaller topics, something very precise and looking uh, overall on uh, Southeast Asia, right, Chris? Absolutely. And, you know, what we really need to do is just thank everyone for joining. You could have been anywhere, but you chose to be with us. And so definitely today we are so lucky that we have uh, the money, which is the fuel, uh, and so Harish with 700 million bucks and counting, and the entrepreneurs <laughs> that are really building the dream, uh, Dr. Huran, and with the both of you and all of us and the questions from the audience, because that you guys are the most important part of these webinars that we do to have the right conversations. We're all growing to win to build a better tomorrow. So thank you very much. The next uh, topic uh, in a fortnight's time will be on social commerce and we're very lucky to have Sachin from B Capital that's just raised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions. So we'll be talking about social e-commerce and bling bling ching ching. So thank you so much everybody <laughs> signing out. Thank you Arash. Thank you Arash. Thank you. Bye bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for signing in. Signing out. Bye bye.